My name's Andrew Cameron. I'm the founder of the Center for Small Town Success. I'm a business owner, and I live in Amherst, Nova Scotia, with my daughter, my wife, and my two dogs. I've started this podcast because I want to talk about the impacts that monopolies and consolidated corporate power have had on my hometown. And I'm going to talk about my experiences and talk about Amherst. But I ask you to please think about where you or your parents or maybe your grandparents grew up. Or if you grew up in the city, think about the neighborhood where you lived. And think about, okay, what's, what's that place like now? Do you see any of the same things that I've been seeing here as well? I want to go back and try to find our Canadian anti-monopoly history. My theory is that we can find some of the solutions for today's problems in our history and through our past stories. And there's not a lot of discussion or writings or research out there about the Canadian anti-monopoly history. And I want to try to find some of that. But I think the impact on small towns and small businesses, I think will be similar for people in the US or in the UK or in Europe or Australia. So the policy changes and the regulations will be different, but I think the impacts will still be very similar. I also want to find and investigate the policy changes and the rules changes we made that allowed for monopolies to come back. I think if we can figure out what we changed to let this happen, maybe we can change it again to bring more power back to small towns and smaller businesses. Because ultimately what I want is for people in small towns to have control over and feel hopeful about their lives and their futures. And so today's episode is about what led me down this path to identify the problems with monopolies and the impact that they're having on my hometown and identify one of the changes that we made in the 1980s that allowed for this consolidation to happen again. Like I said, I grew up in Amherst, Nova Scotia. It's a small town on pretty much the border of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. And it sort of is the main center for Cumberland County. So Amherst has a population of about 10,000 people and our whole county has about 30,000 people or so. I come from a family of small business owners. You know, my mom ran a women's clothing store in the mall for 30 years. My dad's basically is a serial entrepreneur. My grandfather was a traveler and he sold menswear all over the Maritimes. My great grandfather was a tailor in Amherst. Like that's where I come from. That's my history. I graduated high school in Amherst in 1999. And I always joke that, you know, I graduated on Tuesday. I moved away on Friday and really didn't move back until 2015 when we expanded our business back up here. And so when I moved back, it was the same town, but it just something felt, something felt off. Something kind of felt like it was missing. I always kind of joke. It's like, you know, you see an old wrestler, like you see Hulk Hogan trying to wrestle now and you go, well, that is Hulk Hogan, but not really. You know, he just doesn't move the same. Something's, something's missing. And that was sort of the same feeling that I had, like when I came back to Amherst. When we were looking to move back, you know, we had a daughter and two dogs. So trying to find an apartment or somewhere to rent was challenging for us. 
and we were struggling with it. We were struggling with this until one day I went onto Facebook and I saw this house for sale. And the house was around the corner from where I grew up, like where I lived in high school. And I saw the price. And so I said, this is a great. So I called a realtor that I know really well and said, you know, what's the deal with this house? And he went, it's a great deal. The roof's been replaced. Foundation looks good and everything. And I said, excellent, perfect. Put in an offer. I'll be up next week to look at it. So we put in the offer, countered, it got accepted. I came up the next week, did the inspection, did walk through and said, great, let's finish this. Then a month later, my wife finally came up and actually saw the house. She was kind of, kind of happy, kind of not happy with basically buying a house sight unseen. But the moral of that story is the house was great. You know, it was a perfect part of town for us to grow up in. But even that part of town, like when I was growing up, when I was a kid, that street probably had 10 or 15 kids always running around out on their bikes, playing in the park. That neighborhood didn't have the same feeling. And the same with even the neighborhood I grew up in. You know, on our street, which was just a small street, there was always at least 15 kids. And come summertime, we'd always be out playing hide and go seek, or we'd be playing, you know, a game we always loved. It was called Ghosts in the Graveyard. And so my mom or dad always joke, you know, you'd be outside and you'd hear somebody yell, Ghosts in the Graveyard, run, run, run. And all of a sudden, this swarm of 15 kids would come running out from behind somebody's house and across the street. And those kind of neighborhoods just didn't seem to be there. And these were sort of the uneasy feelings that kind of lingered with me that said, you know, something, this is the same town, but something is just sort of missing. And I didn't know what it was, and I didn't know why it wasn't the same. And what frustrated me sort of the most about that is I didn't even really know what questions to ask to start to find an answer to it. I just had that uneasy feeling that something was missing. So before I continue too much further into this podcast, there is something, you know, that I just want to be really clear of up front. Um, this podcast, everything I'm doing with Center for Small Town Success, this is not a make Amherst great again thing, right? This is not me being nostalgic for nostalgic's sake or wanting to go back to something just because, right? Like I grew up in Amherst and I enjoyed it and had positive experiences here. But I am aware and I know that like Amherst and other small towns, you know, it wouldn't necessarily be the easiest place for people in, you know, the LGBTQ community or for other visible minorities. And so for me, we can learn from the experiences that people had and make our community more welcoming and more inclusive moving forward. Because I want to see what, you know, people who would have been historically marginalized could actually add to our community when they're given a fair shot. You know, when we've dealt with a lot of the systemic problems and issues that have been holding them back, holding back our small towns and our small communities, I think we can all add a lot to it. And I want the opportunities for everybody to add to our communities. Most importantly, my ultimate goal with this is I want our communities and people in our towns to have control over their communities and hope for their own future. Okay, so now that I kind of touched on that, I want to get back to sort of that uneasiness feeling, you know, and the concern that just something was missing, something wasn't quite right. And so most of the time that I'd mention that to people or my concerns about Amherst and just this general uneasiness, it was kind of greeted with like a shrug and just, uh, well, you know, that is just the way it is. My wife and I lived in Japan for three and a half years and we taught English there and they had a phrase, it's called shogunai. And it's kind of like, ah, well, that's the way it is. You better accept it. 
And that was sort of the, a lot of the feeling that I was getting from people was, well, this is just the way it is. Small towns are dying. That's it. But I didn't like that. Like, it, it didn't make sense to me why this was happening. And I couldn't figure out the problem. And even worse than that, I couldn't figure out the questions to ask. And so then March 2020, obviously COVID hit. And I had more time to just sort of sit, think, and to read. And so, you know, our bookstore was closed locally. So I was ordering books online. And so I was on Amazon. And this always kind of entertains me is that I was on Amazon ordering some books. And all of a sudden it came up and they recommended a book to me called The Myth of Capitalism by Jonathan Tepper with Denise Hearn. And this book talks all about how so many industries are being rolled up and consolidated and the impact it has on other businesses. So, for example, here's one passage from the book, from the introduction. Since the early 1980s, market concentration has increased severely. As we'll document in this book, two corporations control 90% of the beer Americans drink, four airlines completely dominate airline traffic, often enjoying local monopolies or duopolies in the regional hubs, Five banks control about half of the nation's banking assets. Many states have health insurance markets where the top two insurers have an 80 to 90% market share. When it comes to high-speed internet access, almost all markets are local monopolies. Over 75% of households have no choice with only one provider. Four players control the entire US beef market and have carved up the country. After two mergers this year, three companies will control 70% of the world's pesticide market in 80% of the U.S. corn seed market. And so this book was written in 2019, so I think this has even just gotten worse over the last three years. When you get to such large companies, basically, you know, small businesses can't compete. It's just you can't compete with companies that are that large. And so this is a fantastic book. I recommend to anybody. I actually enjoyed it so much that as soon as I finished it, I went back on and ordered a copy and sent it to my dad and sent another copy to another friend. And I always just have copies around to give to people. Right When I read the book, it identified the problem. I said, that's the problem, but it still felt too abstract. I couldn't quite connect it to exactly what I was seeing happen in Amherst and how things were going, right? Like I couldn't make it concrete to what happened to my hometown yet. And so I drive around Amherst and I'd be thinking about this and I'd go, well, there was that business there. I wonder what happened to it, you know, or there was that business there or... And I started thinking about this and watching it and, and I was starting to form a picture in my head, but it wasn't fully realized yet. But then one day after playing hockey, I was talking to a business owner in town, probably 20 years older than me or so. And we were chatting and at one point I just said to him, yeah, but where is my business generation? And as soon as I said it, I said, that's the question. That's the one that if I start answering, maybe it'll give me the answer. It clarified I wasn't missing the actual businesses. I was missing the people behind the businesses and the value that they bring to the community. Business leaders in really any small town, one, they're creating jobs, two, they're spending their profit locally, you know, they're shopping locally, but they also live here, they live in the community. You know, they a lot of times are involved in the local service groups, they sponsor local events. But most importantly, the success of their business depends on the success of the community. And I think that changes the calculation for so many businesses, right? Like I think like my mom's store, when she was running that, for her to be successful, Amherst needed to be successful. If Walmart moves into a town and after a while the town's struggling or just not doing that well, it can pack up and leave. It's still gonna be fine. So the relationship to the communities between those two businesses are just different. 
And so I was thinking more about sort of the missing business leaders and the missing business generation. And so a few weeks ago, I texted one of my friends and I said, hey, question for you. If I gave you 15 minutes, how many business leaders or business owners from when we were kids do you think you could name? And so he guessed, he, he guessed about, you know, 25 to 30. And I said, you know, I bet you I could get to about 40. I left it at that. And then last week for my newsletter, I was writing about this. Uh, I'll put a link to this post down in the show notes. But I was thinking about this and I said, you know what, I'm going to try it. So I sat down, gave myself 15 minutes and said, how many business owners from when I was growing up can I name? And so my initial guess was I thought I could get to 40. I actually got to 72. And that is absolutely not an exhaustive list. Like, I know I forgot lots of people, and I'm sorry, I apologize if I did. I also said it that I had to remember their name. Like, there were a lot of businesses around that I remember existing, but I can't remember who owned them. Or it was like, oh, yeah, you know, that guy's dad ran that business, but I couldn't remember anybody's names. So they didn't count. But still, I got to 72. I initially thought 40, but I got to 72. And then when I think about, like, currently, sort of around my age... I can't come to 72 people who own and run businesses here. So the question came, what happened to them? Before we carry on, I will make one comment, though. That list of business owners that I came up with was very homogenous. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of women and there wasn't a whole lot of visible minorities on that list. I would like to see us moving forward in our community for that list to be much more diverse because I think that diversity adds a lot to the community. So I started to question what happened to most of these businesses. And one, some of them closed, which is just part of the life cycle of the businesses. Some were passed on to the next generation in the family. And a large portion of them were sold to larger companies or larger conglomerates, right? So for example, the two paving companies in and around Amherst, one was sold to the Miller Group and the other was sold to the municipal group of companies. Those are both two large conglomerates. The license plate manufacturing company was sold to another larger manufacturing company. The car dealerships are now mostly owned by auto groups. You know, the newspaper was first bought by transcontinental media as they rolled up as many newspapers as they could in the Maritimes. You know, the radio station was purchased by the Maritime Broadcasting Systems, you know, as they were purchasing a lot of smaller radio stations. So we had a lot of that happening in town. The thing is like, I don't regret or begrudge those business owners for selling. The economic policies and the economic systems we created have developed incentives that the best thing for them to do was to sell to a larger company. So I don't begrudge their individual decision. I just want us to change the economic system and policies so that those incentives aren't there. The incentives are more to keep control and keep ownership locally. From there, one industry that I think a lot about because I've been more involved in that is sort of the retail industry in Amherst. You know, like I said, my mom ran a clothing store in Amherst for 30 years. And I remember as a kid, there was the Wandel in a motel just outside of town. I would end up having to go with her to see the travelers who would be coming through town with like their racks of clothes that they would drive to town, set up for days. And people who owned local retail stores would come out, look at the catalogs, look at the samples and place their orders. It was the same people through every year that, you know, my mom would develop friendships and relationships with. and. And these people would have been doing it for a long time. So they also knew like my grandfather and they knew my dad. Like there was a whole network of these travelers just going around and there was enough business, and enough stores for them to come to an area and set up for a week and do business. And we don't have that anymore. The travelers aren't on the road. There aren't this 
number of small independent businesses, and we can debate whether that's good or bad, but they were always interesting. We'll put it that way. Meeting those people was always an interesting experience. But even beyond that, in Amherst, like when I was growing up, you know, we had two malls. One was anchored by Zellers and Save Easy, and the other was anchored by Kmart and Sobeys. You know, and in between there was independent stores, there were some chain stores, but there were full malls and there was things happening at them all the time. Actually, kind of funny story, that Zellers, the initial one is where <laughs> when I was, I was probably nine, maybe 10, I'd saved up all my paper route money. And then I made my grandfather take me up there so I could buy the original Game Boy, like the old black and white one. That was one of my main memories from that Zellers. Back to the retail in Amherst, we also had, we had a gas station downtown, we had grocery stores downtown, like we still had somewhat of a vibrant retail space downtown, but Amherst also had a department store downtown. Two Barkers actually originally opened in 1906, sold and became Margolians in the 50s, then changed its name to Dale's in early 2000s, and then closed in 2016. We actually had a sort of a sustainable retail scene in Amherst while I was growing up, but now it's gone. We don't, you know, right now the malls are basically empty. One was turned into a strip mall. Dale's is closed. There's no gas station downtown. There's no grocery store downtown. There's a small Simply for Life runs a, like a small market, but not a larger grocery store down this way. So retail really died off. So I remember the story I always heard or was always told about what happened to the Amherst retail is, you know, we're 45 minutes away from Moncton, New Brunswick, and Moncton now is a larger center. There's about 100,000 people in the area, and it's always been a bigger shopping center than Amherst. So the story I was always told and always heard was that, you know, in the early 90s, they finished twinning the highway to Moncton. So it was much easier to drive and get to Moncton. So more people were going up that way. More chain stores started opening in Moncton. They were a bit cheaper and they had a bigger selection. So it was more, people had more incentive to go up that way. You know, and so chain stores, Walmart, uh, Costco, Staples, Sport Check, Marks, Canadian Tire, like you'll know all the names of them. And I always just accepted that story. I was like, okay, all right, well, that kind of makes sense. So after I read that other book, The Myth of Capitalism, I was like, okay, I got to learn more about this. I got to find out more about, you know, monopolies, consolidation, what happened. And I bought another book. It's called Goliath, The Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly, Power, and Democracy by Matt Stoller. You'll hear me talk about Matt a lot. He writes a newsletter, talk about monopolies and consolidations, and he works for, in the U.S., an organization called the American Economics Liberty Project. And they do a lot of research on this, too. And so this book, Goliath, was about it's sort of the American history of, we'll say, antitrust, so their competition laws from the early 1900s through to today. And so in the introduction, he has a section. A 1911 Supreme Court decision allowed stores to sell below cost and drive their competitors out of business. Retailers with access to capital, known as chain stores, could now destroy those who didn't. This legal change, plus the spread of the automobile, which let Americans shop around more easily, began replacing local retailers with chains. Chain stores exploded, led by the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, known as the A&P. In 1914, A&P had $31 million in revenue and fewer than 500 stores. Ten years later, it had 440 million and 14,000 stores. So I read that section and I just went, wait a minute, that's the exact same story I've been told about what happened to retail in Amherst. 
right? Chain stores were cheaper. It was easier to drive to Moncton. You know, Matt's saying there was a policy change. I didn't know what policy changes were done, but I assumed there was a third one. The changes that were done in 1911 basically allowed chain stores to proliferate and independent stores to die off. So it stands to reason that those same three things happening in the 1990s would do the same. And so I read that and I went, now I see how this applies directly to Amherst. These policies, these things happened and killed off independent and local retail here. And so Matt's book was all about the American story and the American history. And it has a big influence on us in Canada, but I didn't know much about the Canadian history. And so I figured, okay, there has to be a policy change or there was policy changes somewhere. I just didn't know what it was. There were many that happened really in the 80s. But the policy change that I'm going to focus on first is the changes to the Canadian Competition Act. And there's a review of that act actually going to happen this year. Let's talk just briefly about the Canadian Competition Act. I'm not an expert on this. There are experts out there, and hopefully we'll talk to them and learn more about it. But high level, the Canadian Competition Act was brought in in 1986. It replaced the Combines Investigation Act, which was first passed in 1910, and then modified many times over the next 76 years. And there was actually a previous act before the Combines Investigation Act, which again, we'll get to at some point. So the changes to our Competition Act were born out of the thinking from the Chicago School of Economics. And these economists and thinkers and lawyers were the ones that really pushed for the major changes to the American antitrust rules and enforcement that we ultimately adopted and brought into our Competition Act. So the thinking they had was that competition laws should focus on efficiency and consumer welfare, not economic power, not protecting small towns or small businesses from larger corporations or anti-competitive business practices. Their focus was just efficiency and consumer welfare. And in context, what this meant was consumer welfare was basically if prices didn't go up, consumers were better off. Prices went up, consumers were not as well off. So these changes basically let any merger or any two companies wanted to merge, as long as they could show that their merger wouldn't increase prices for consumers, the merger was allowed to go through. So basically they were focused really just on price. So with this change to focus on price, consumer welfare and efficiency, we allowed mergers to go through and it didn't matter if the newly merged company could use profits from one line to underprice competitors in another business to force them out of business. Didn't matter if they now were of large enough size to force suppliers to cut their prices and profits. We just stopped caring about that anymore. We only really focused on price. And as long as it wasn't expected to raise prices, we didn't worry about it. And how we determined if it was gonna raise prices or not was basically economists came in and created models and they made expectations of what they thought would happen depending on this merger. And if the economist was hired by the merging companies, they typically showed that prices were not going to go up. So the other thing that happened in all of this is our competition policy switched from really a straightforward sort of democratic policy that regular people could understand and participate in to a very expert oriented technocratic policy that was reserved only for the experts, right? And so these experts are the competition lawyers and the competition economists. They're not the regular people, even though you and I, and we take Amherst, for example, Amherst feels in the pain of these mergers and these changes. This policy was not for us anymore. It was for experts only. These changes impacted all of us on a day-to-day -day life, in our jobs, in our work, in our communities. What I want to do is start bringing this policy back 
to for regular people making it more accessible to other people as I start to learn more about it too. Amherst, my hometown, has suffered immensely in the name of efficiency and consumer welfare. And I don't want to make this trade anymore, and you shouldn't either. And that's what this podcast is really about. It's looking back to find our Canadian anti-monopoly history. So join me as I learn more about our history and think about how that has impacted my hometown. So to stay up to date, subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app and let any of your other friends or people you know who may be interested know about this podcast, please. Main Street is struggling. Monopolies killed my hometown.